This episode of the Second Floor Podcast is brought to you by Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special episode on Second Floor Podcast here. I am uh, in attendance with me virtually, sitting down with Holly Lucier. Holly is on the show today to um, talk about a very specific uh, tragic incident that has happened in her life that has led her to be on a quest to ensure that any family or any person out there that has struggled to deal with a loss of life, um, how to pretty much navigate through that process and continue to fight for um, those who uh, continue to live on in our memory. And I'd like to take the time right now to recognize that this episode is in loving memory of Chloe Lillian Carmen Zina Wachere. And I now have her mother with me, Holly, who's going to share with us her story, as well as, you know, everything that has led up to this very moment of where Holly continues to fight for, um, you know, justice when it comes to certain uh, victims' families who continue to fight for um, the preservation of uh, the lives that have been lost. So I'm going to allow Holly to um, take on the floor and be welcomed. And Holly, if you can um, just start off by sharing um, you know, a little bit about right now what you've currently accomplished and what you've done um, to highlight uh, some of the things you've done in honor of Chloe's life. And then from there, we will be able to have you share what happened. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Kenny. I, I appreciate your time and all of this. Um, I think um, in recent months, um, we've taken to, uh, I joined together with a, um, an advocacy group in British Columbia called Families for Justice. And Families for Justice is run by Marquita Collius, who is the president and founder. And her and I joined together this winter and um, together we wrote a letter. Um, the letter was, you know, sharing Chloe's story, um, my daughter Chloe, and, um, and the impact of impaired driving in Canada on victims and their families across the board, you know, not just for us. Um, we wrote the letter and we sent it out to 192 members of parliament. Um, out of the 192 members of parliament that we sent it to, including David Lametti, who is the Minister of Justice, um, we received um, responses back from about eight or nine members. Um, so I think, you know, that also is, um, you know, kind of important to note because the reason why I think a lot of people feel frustrated with trying to take on advocacy matters and, you know, fight for things that they're passionate about is because they don't feel heard. Um, they don't feel that anybody's listening. Um, they feel very let down and defeated by our government, um, by our justice system. And, you know, when they write, um, you know, when you're not when you're not receiving any responses, it can feel a little frustrating. It can feel a little defeating. Um, and I can honestly say that there were definitely moments when I felt like, you know, uh, the defeat was, you know, pretty thick. But at the end of the day, I kept just thinking to myself, you know, whatever we don't accomplish today, let's not measure it by what we're not getting done, but let's measure it by what we are doing. And it's the effort. It's the, you know, every day I wake up and I think about my daughter, Chloe. And then I think about all of the other people and all of the other innocent victims that are going to be impacted by impaired driving today. Um, and I say today because it's an average of four lives a day in Canada that are lost to impaired driving. Too um, much. It's, um, it's, you know, the, 
the numbers are staggering and they show us that this is a far bigger crisis and a far bigger problem than we are actually recognizing as a society collectively. And so, you know, it was really important for us to try and get that message across um, to try to reach members of parliament. And we were very fortunate in, um, we were contacted by Honorable Rob Moore and um, his assistant Catherine, and they were instrumental in um, trying to deliver our message to Parliament. And um, at that point, after connecting with them, we had a virtual meeting with Mr. Moore and um, it was really encouraging to speak to a member of parliament and be able to address some of these concerns and feel like you're being heard. It was, um, you know, I really appreciated his time and the passion behind the work that he does. So, um, you know, from there we were invited to speak uh, in parliament and uh, I went to Ottawa then for June 21st and, um, you know, we gave testimony at that point. Marquita Collius was also there. Uh, she appeared virtually and together we both, you know, presented and um, gave our testimony to Parliament and asked for the things that we felt were most important for victims and their families, which are mental health supports, financial assistance, advocacy, and, um, you know, the um, the opportunity for victims and their families to actually be heard and recognized, um, especially when it comes to, um, I shouldn't say especially, but, you know, I was speaking to impaired driving. And so, um, you know, specifically with regards to impaired driving, um, victims and their families are put through the guise of a court system, a court process, you know, it's put under the guise of an accident. Um, so families and, you know, victims and their families go through all of these procedures um, under the guise of an accident. And, you know, it is probably one of the most violent, um, you know, crimes that a person can experience. And, you know, or I shouldn't say the most, but um, it is a very violent crime. It's there very preventable. A, it's like you just you take drinking preventable. and you yeah. don't do it when you're behind the wheel. And it's that simple. And that law should it's not be taken that simple. lightly. Right. Yeah. Um, we need to see harsher sentencing um, for impaired drivers. We need to see the laws change to reflect impaired driving as, you know, for what it is, which is vehicular manslaughter caused by impaired driving. It's not an accident. Um, accidents are things that happen, you know, from malfunctions, from weather, from, you know, you know, just inclement circumstances that are beyond our control. Impaired driving is 100% in our control and offenders are given the opportunity to be tried as, as an accident, to be sentenced as an accident, and to go before the courts as an accident. And it's the families that are also sitting through these court procedures under the guise of this accident, and it is harmful. It is actually hurting victims and their families. And it, it almost seems like a crime against humanity that has gone unnoticed for far too long. The, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, no, I and I appreciate you sharing all that detail. The fact that you've gotten such, you could say, like large amount of support from uh, the government 
from what it seems, just by voicing this out and being able to go to Ottawa. I I love the way you put that, Holly, where you, you finally just felt like you've gotten your voice heard. You know, it's it's one thing to send a letter or a complaint, but the fact that you were able to present this in front of, um, you know, so many counselors that may be a part of the decision-making process of these changing is a huge step in the right direction, you know, for, for, for your family, for others, for anyone in the future that may be put in the same place. Um, if we can get a little bit of a backstory with as much as you're comfortable in sharing um, with what happened to your daughter, uh, just to give light to um, the situation, um, that'd be greatly appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you, Kenny. Um, my daughter, Chloe, was 16 years old, um, and it was on the night of April 15th, 2018. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, she was on her way home to make it on time for curfew, and um, she had taken the bus home, and she got off the city bus. She waited at the crosswalk. Um, you know, she activated the the crosswalk lights. She wasn't distracted. She wasn't intoxicated. You know, she wasn't doing anything that she wasn't supposed to do. She was, you know, crossing the road and, um, you know, taking all the appropriate measures that parents teach their children to take. Um, you know, she was doing everything right. And I think that, um, yeah, that always sticks with me because it could have been anyone. You know, Chloe's story isn't just um, a spin-off or a one-off situation. It could have been anyone, and it can be anyone. And you know, that was that was for Chloe. So um, she had crossed actually five lanes of traffic, and she had almost made it to the curbside crosswalk when she was blindsided by an F-150 pickup truck being driven by a severely impaired driver. This driver struck her, sending her flying 30 meters from the collision point. She actually um, was hit. She hit the meridian, the center meridian first, and then skidded to where her body stopped. Um, the driver kept going. He never stopped. He never stopped. He never called for help. He never thought twice about this innocent life that he struck. Um, in Chloe's case, the driver was a lawyer, and so he had a prominent position in Edmonton and in the community, and he understood the law, um, you know, so um, it just aggravates the situation even more that he would abandon a human life um, and abandon his oath for the law is, you know, essentially um, in that case what he did. And so, um, you know, Chloe was killed instantly. There was no opportunity for us to ever talk to her again, to say goodbye to her. Um, her dad and I, you know, the, our last time that we got to speak to our child was, you know, that Sunday um, evening and that Sunday afternoon. And, you know, she had said to me, mom, I'll call you when I get home. I love you. And, you know, I fell asleep that evening and I woke up to the call from the hospital. Um, and at that time, uh, I had just moved to Fort McMurray that year uh, or the year before. And um, but I had had kept an Edmonton phone number so that Chloe could, you know, call me easily. And so the hospital had called me thinking that I was still in Edmonton asking me to come to the hospital. And um, they had to tell me over the phone that there had been a, a catastrophic collision and that Chloe had died that evening. And I can tell you, Kenny, I... To this day, it still feels like yesterday. You know, it still feels so raw and so painful. I remember those words and immediately I just slammed awake and 
I, and immediately went into shock. You know, there was, um, I remember, you know, bits and pieces of having to do things. Um, I remember bits and pieces of, of trying to put, you know, uh, a bag together and, and pack clothes and just being like, nothing matters anymore. You know, once you hear the, the words that your child no longer lives, it doesn't matter anymore what you're going to wear. It doesn't matter anymore what was happening in your life yesterday or, or you know, what your priorities were at the time. You, I was just rendered literally in the most awful state of shock. And I remember people saying to me, you know, you seem so strong and you seem, you know, you're, I was able to talk and to do things, but it was just out of a state of shock. Um, I have very little recollection of those beginning times and those moments. I did a lot of writing. And so I have a lot of writing to reflect back on um, that refresh my memory. And, and I'm able to then um, to remember things. But if I wouldn't have done as much writing as I did, I probably wouldn't be able to recall a lot of the details from that time. You know, as parents, we don't plan for our children's death. You know, we plan for our own, our own, um, our own passings. And, um, you know, we do our own estate planning and we are constantly worried about providing for our children should something happen to us. But we don't think about what would happen if our children pass. We're not, you know, we're not geared. We're not created to plan for our children's death. They're not supposed to, we're not supposed to outlive them. And so the whole experience was um, just, you know, when I, I was thinking about it today and thinking about those first moments and how traumatic it was and how overwhelming it was, um, trying to plan my daughter's funeral and trying to, you know, pick out her clothing. Um, we dressed her in her graduation dress. She didn't get to wear her graduation dress to graduation. She wore it to her funeral. And I just can't even begin to um, explain what it is like for a parent to walk into a funeral home and see their child um, lying on a, uh, the funeral home table. It is, um, she had been so alive and she had been one of the most vocal and energetic young ladies that you could ever meet. She was so passionate about helping children and helping others and speaking for mental health and advocating for those who didn't have a voice. And she was so young, but she, she was so passionate about so many things. And even now, it still is hard to believe. I was thinking about this today, like, you know, she was just right there. She was just right there. My daughter was so full of life. And then all of a sudden she was just gone, ripped away from me in one of the most catastrophic and violent ways. And to know that she couldn't speak for herself anymore, to know that she, um, she really, you know, she, losing your life, you're left with, you know, you can't, my daughter needed to be spoken for. 
and I promised her in that funeral home that I would speak for her until my dying days and that I would tell her story and I would never stop telling her story and that we would keep fighting for changes so that other people wouldn't have to go through what we've gone through. And that was my promise to her. And I think that, um, you know, I took that with me and I didn't know at the time how I was going to do that or how we were going to even take one step forward uh, without her. But as time went on, we were able to to keep speaking for her. Um, we opened up and started the Justice for Chloe, which our Facebook page. And, you know, we shared her story over and over. And, you know, I remember times thinking to myself, like, you know, I must sound like a lunatic. I must sound like a hysterical mother, but I had to keep speaking for her. And I had to keep reminding people that this was happening. My biggest fear was that Chloe would be forgotten and that her offender would get the benefit of that and, and be able to, um, you know, escape accountability. And so, you know, it was, um, it was a horrific, um, even just those beginning moments were, you know, the worst parts of my life. I couldn't imagine coming back from that or being able to take steps forward or just live in my life. And, um, you know, I think about so many other families that have lost their children in these ways. And I think about all of these parents all the time and it just breaks my heart. It literally physically pains me to think of other families going through this process and not having the supports and advocacy and resources that they need to get through this. Yeah, wow. I uh, I just, I, I, I can't imagine what that pain is like from the way you describe not only just getting that news, Holly, but then having to, you know, hear how it happened and then the strength in which you do have and that others have reminded you that you have with uh, the need and the desire to keep repetitively telling that story because it just it brings you back to that very moment and I, I feel like you're absolutely right in what you said is there's just no length of, of amount of time by any means when you lose a loved one when you lose someone you brought in this world that's going to make you go okay I'm ready to just go back to normal I, I'm I, I can't imagine that um how different your life has been since then and just how really proud your daughter Chloe is and knowing that, you know, to this day, four years later, you're, you're an advocate for um, someone such as herself and other people that uh, have been in her position uh, to be able to keep fighting to, to ensure that, that this doesn't keep happening, that this is preventable. It's, it's almost, I can't imagine like it's a, the tragedy that it is just how like dumbfounded someone has to be to be like, this is how, you know, I had to lose my daughter's life. And it, it's just, it's not fair at all. It's its such a heinous crime. It's something that is so um, unjust. And then to now continue to fight to ensure that um, whoever did this um, knows the consequences of that. And mm -hmm. yeah, once again, I'm just, my condolences. And I'm just so terribly sorry to hear how that played out. Thank you so much, Kenny. I, um, I'd like to know exactly, you know, what that typical process looks like after, especially for anyone. Um, of course, I mean, there's just, there's no other way to put this in that. Like I, 
God forbid this happens to anyone in life. Like you say, we don't prepare for these things. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things you're never just going to Google one day, but you're just going to listen to to hear just like how tough that was as far as the aftermath. You know, outside of the funeral, what were some of the things that have surprised you and um, some of the steps that you had to take to prepare to fight for your daughter's life and for justice to, to be served? Oh, the aftermath was, um, I mean, I work in the legal community. I'm a paralegal. And um, I thought that I understood the legal system. I really thought that I had a good grasp of what that was going to look like and how I was going to navigate it. And I think what threw me off the most was that, you know, even after the experience that I've had with work, um, there was nothing that could prepare me for going through the Canadian justice system. Um, from the moment leading afterwards, after her death and getting through the funeral, um, and then you're, you know, you're left with all of this shock and this grief, and then you have the looming um, cloud over your head of, of what these proceedings are going to look like, and you have no answers. Um, you know, you're, you're, you get court dates. The court dates are often adjournments because Crown at that point has to provide crimin the, the criminal disclosure to defense, and that often takes a little while for that to happen. So right at the beginning, right off the bat, there's several adjournments. So for families, a lot of the times they're, you know, they're going to the courthouse, um, it, you know, thinking that there's going to be something happening on their matter. Um, it's just getting adjourned over, you know, and that'll go several more times. Um, for us, we went through several adjournments. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, surely he's going to plead guilty. You know, he must, he must want to plead guilty. That's the right thing to do. He killed her. You know, why would he want to, um, you know, prolong our suffering? Why would he want to, um, you know, extend our agony like that? So I was blindsided by the fact that he didn't. Um, I really had a lot of faith that as a lawyer that he was going to do the right thing. So and he didn't plead guilty. He said that this isn't my fault. Well, essentially. It took him it took him two and a half years to plead guilty. Wow. Or that he wasn't drunk in the act just he, based off of. Yeah. Like he never, um, he ended up pleading guilty, but it took him two and a half years to enter that guilty plea. Yeah, and there's terrible. a bunch of um, procedures that happen um, in court leading up to that point. So usually there's what they call a preliminary hearing, which is when, you know, the evidence is sort of reviewed before the courts to determine, um, you know, if there's any evidence that can be struck from the record and, um, and that sort of thing. And so our offender, you know, did what many offenders do. And it's when, you know, they sort of keep setting these dates. And then at the last minute, they waive their right. So, you know, if you take a look at like the Humboldt tragedy, um, with that driver in particular, um, that driver in particular, um, with that offender, I've shed many tears over the Humboldt tragedy. And I was really impacted by the fact that the offender wanted to plead guilty as quickly as possible to spare the family's agony. 
And I remember when that story came out, it was right at the time when I was still waiting for our offender to, you know, to see what he was going to do. And when that story came out and I saw that he was trying to plead guilty to spare the family's agony, I literally, I remember sitting on my couch and just crying and thinking like, if only our offender would do that. Yeah, that's someone who's human. That's like it, understands and what they have just done, not only to someone or many people or just in general, yeah. um, the families affected. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Bookwoman. Bookwoman is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more about bookwomanpodcast.ca. Yeah, you were saying there, Holly, about uh, just the difference between um, someone uh, who is in this case of the Humboldt Broncos compared to what you were dealing with, where, um, you know, your offender didn't have much of any ability or willingness to plead guilty right away. They ended up prolonging that as long as they could. Yeah, I um, uh, when I saw that case and I saw the offender that um, was, you know, very concerned about the families and the victims, um, you know, nothing eases it for the families. You know, they've we've lost what we've lost. We've lost. We can't get back. And so there isn't really anything to make it easier or better for us. But I believe when you have an offender who is showing that they are remorseful, um, it spares the family the agony of having to wait and then fight. And so, you know, for us, um, our offender scheduled and um, they set a date for a preliminary hearing, which was scheduled for February 12th to 14th of 2019. And rate, I think it was February 4th. So two weeks before it was scheduled to start, our offender waived his right to the prelim. And so at that point, then we had to wait for him to be arraigned, which came in April. Um, and then they set down the date for trial, which was going to be for 2020. And out of curiosity for that time period in between, how, how long was that, Holly? So that was already almost a year. So one year. Date. Is he behind bars at no. that point? Wow. No. Uh, our offender paid $50,000 bail. And he was released the next day after the collision. This is terrible. He got to go home to his family and be with his family. Well, we went to go see our daughter in the funeral home. That's not fair. And this is the reality of what that looks like for impaired driving across Canada. Like it's, um, it's just not taken seriously enough. And our judicial system allows for the offenders to continually have the upper hand and have the ability to keep living their lives while our lives are suspended in the balance. And that is the honest to God's truth of the matter. So, you know, it was almost a year by the time we got arraignment. Um, it was, you know, almost a year. We set down a trial date and then we had to wait another year for, for the trial. Uh, actually, it was another year and a half 
for the trial um, because that was already in April of 219 and trial was scheduled for October 2020. And so our offender waited until um, it was, I believe, September 2020 before he entered his guilty plea. So it was, you know, he pleaded guilty right on the day of trial. And, um, you know, when we appeared for court for trial, we weren't sure 100% if he was going to be, um, you know, pleading guilty or if we were going to be surprised by anything else because it had taken so long to get there. Um, during that two and a half years of waiting to get to trial, just to hear that he is guilty, you know, our lives were completely on hold. There was, you know, if somebody had told me that there was something that I was going to think about and only think about 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would have found that hard to believe. Um, but after my daughter passed away, she was all I thought about all day, every day. And I just waited in agony, wondering what our offender was going to do. By the time I got the news that he was going to plead guilty, um, you know, it was, I was just so appalled and so hurt. And so, you know, I remember um, being in parliament and they asked me, you know, the impact of, of what this process, of what that felt like. And the only thing that I could respond with was that it felt like a betrayal by my own constitution. Um, and I told them that, and I said that, you know, I have no rights. My daughter has no rights. My family has no rights, but our offender does. Yeah. And that is, you know, what that looks like for, for all families across the board right now. Um, and it was agony to get to that point. So in that two and a half years, we waited for the guilty plea. Um, we got the guilty plea. Um, he, even though he, because he had paid bail, um, he was able to enter a guilty plea and then still return home. Wow, really? Yes. And so we all left the courthouse that day and our offender went home with his family and we went home with our family. And then we had to wait two more, you know, I think it was like another uh, week for sentencing. Uh, and then we finally were able to see our offender being taken into custody. And this was two and a half years after the fact. So you know, delayed. So we get through um, the sentencing and it was horrific. It was horrific because it was inside a courtroom that I learned for the first time the details of my daughter's death. There were so many things that I did not know about what had happened to her and the um, the specific details of the collision. Oh, and that I was found, found out. That I found much, out about it in a courtroom. That much longer later on, two and a two half, and years, half later. years later. And that was from so, a lot of what you said from yeah. when you shared what happened. You didn't even know any of that stuff until that no, day. No, I had no idea. Um, I had really the only knowledge that I had is what the rest of the public had. There was nothing available to me for me to really know. Um, I thought that I knew. I thought that I knew all the details. I had talked to the medical examiner. I had spoken with, um, you know, as many people as I possibly could that were witnesses at the scene that night. And, um, 
there was, um, you know, I thought I had a really clear understanding of what happened, but it was um, the most traumatizing thing to be in a courtroom. And at that time it was during COVID. So I wasn't able to have my whole family with me. We were only able to have four members in the courtroom. And so um, it, it, it literally put me right back to the start. It was very traumatic. It was very horrific. Um, you know, we got through that whole sentencing. He was taken into custody. Um, we returned home and within a month we got um, notification that our offender was applying for day parole. Oh, wow. So we literally wrote one victim impact statement for November, for October, 2020. And by the end of November, I was then writing my next victim impact statement for the parole hearing that was gonna be scheduled the following spring. And that was probably one of the most devastating things for me to realize about corrections and how parole works and all of these things were that, that it can happen that quickly. And you have no choice but to keep going back in and reliving it and fighting for your child who no longer has a voice, who can no longer represent themselves, who can no longer speak for themselves or even live their lives. And you have to keep going in there and explaining to the Parole Board of Canada why it's wrong to release the offender early. It's the biggest slap across the face for two reasons. Number one, it's like you're going to make your family wait that long just for the fact of needing to go through this process. And I understand there's millions of people in our country. There's several hundreds of thousands of cases that need to be put in place. But just recognizing the length of time it takes to be able to sit in that level of unknown, that um, that deep-rooted amount of uncertainty that you and your family had to get put through. And then part two to that, only to be able to recognize that once he pleads guilty, that within one month, this person can just be off to the races to go about pretty much living um, whatever their life of normal looks like at that point out of um, a maximum or minimum security prison. It's just, yeah, it that's baffling. Like, it's baffling. Yeah, it literally, it felt like such a betrayal because I, you know, I really thought that once he was incarcerated, that that would give our family some time to um, to heal. But Where our did, healing. I, I was just curious, sorry, Holly, before I, I, I forget this part is, where did the knowledge of what you weren't aware of what happened to Chloe come about? Was that from him pleading guilty and having to explain from his end what ended up happening, if he could have recalled? It was um, from the agreed upon statement of facts. And so right when an offender pleads guilty, um, they sign a, an agreed upon statement of facts, and then the Crown reads that aloud to the court. And so when they read the agreed upon statement of facts allowed to the court and the crown then reviewed, um, you know, what had happened and all of the details of the collision, that's when I learned about what had happened. Okay. And it just, um, it literally, I remember my whole body just collapsing. Like I, um, my husband was beside me in the courtroom and I was almost in a, you know, I, I was almost going into a fetal position. It was, um, it took my breath away. Like I literally couldn't, I felt like I couldn't even breathe. It was just horrendous um, to learn about these things that way. And uh, I will never forget that day in the courtroom and looking at our offender and seeing him for the first time after two and a half years and 
you know, just thinking to myself, like, how could you? How could you drag this out for this long? How could you? How could you do that after you've taken the life of a 16-year-old girl? Just for some context, what would have been different for you and your family had he have just admitted guilt and pleaded guilty, rather, in this case, um, from the very beginning? I think for one, it would have been, um, it would have been believable that he was remorseful. Yes. And being able to believe that he was remorseful. And for me anyway, like just for me personally, I feel that um, it would have brought me some peace to know that he felt something about what he had done. Um. And it wouldn't have taken, you know, it, it wouldn't have been, um, you know, restorative peace. It wouldn't have made up for the fact that my daughter's no longer here, but it would have taken the nightmare of the proceedings off of our plate. Yes. It is the, um, when the offender gets to choose every step of the way and the families are left in the dark wondering what's going on, not knowing what to expect, not knowing if we're going to be going to a trial and we're going to have to sit through two weeks of, of him fighting for his, you know, for his right to plead not guilty, or if he was going to plead guilty and show remorse um, and, and having all of these things hanging over your head, um, your life is literally suspended. Um, the having matters proceed so slowly through the courts is actually really distressing mentally, emotionally, physically, financially for victims and their families. And there are ways, I believe, that the courthouse could speed things up, could have better triage over files and, you know, clear matters off the docket so that people aren't waiting for as long as that they are. Um, there has to be a way in today's day and world and with how progressive Canada is as a country, there surely to God has to be a way for us to be able to get matters through the courts a little more efficiently than what we're seeing right now, because it's causing so much harm on this side of justice. Yeah, I could not, I could not agree more, Holly. I, I'm very curious to know, due to the delay of this person admitting fault, did that play into how long their sentencing was? How much longer they got sentenced? And then how long was the sentence? No, it didn't. Um, it didn't factor into a sentencing at all because what ends up happening is that um, criminals are rewarded at the time of sentencing for having avoided a preliminary hearing when in fact they've squandered a great deal of prosecutor tutorial resources by delaying their decision to the last possible moment. So what happens is the optics for the accused appears as if they pled guilty in a reasonable time frame, because even if you plead guilty on the day of trial, you're still considered that you're pleading guilty early because you're not proceeding with trial. You've saved the court's time and expense and resources of having a trial. So therefore, um, the optics appear as if they plead guilty in a reasonable time frame, and the late guilty plea is then permitted to extend the suffering of the victims and their families. It's just, dis I, that's terrible. 750 days later to be considered as early dismissal towards being able to say 
that you're guilty. That that is that's 750 more days that you and your family had to go through a just unnecessary uncertainty of whether or not this person's going to admit what they did wrong. Absolutely. Um, you know, and then the case law, so how sentencing is, is determined is based on case law. And so they basically take an average of what similar offenses have have um, garnered for sentencing and, and that's how they determine case law um, this for or that's how they determine the sentencing so the average um, sentence for impaired driving causing death in Canada is three and a half to five years and so our offender got three and a half years that's it so low um and I think the hardest part was, you know, I had many family members who were really hoping for um, a lengthier sentence and who believed that under the circumstances and under, you know, with everything that had happened, um, that, you know, surely that he would get more than three and a half years. Well, especially when I, you keep going, hand, when you, you keep know, going, like it happens and then didn't even stop. Yes. It's baffling. He, it's he never stopped. And that was the thing, you know, like that, that would have made some difference too, is to know that our offender stopped for her um, and that he tried to help her, but instead he just abandoned her. He abandoned her. He just left her to die. Like she was nothing. Like she was garbage. He just left her there. And I will never be able to get over that. I will never be able to get over him abandoning my baby on the road and leaving her there to die. That will haunt me for the rest of my life. Um, you know, he got three and a half years and it's, um, it's really sad to say, but I almost felt that we were lucky to get three and a half years because of so many other cases where, um, you know, the offenders have received much less than the three and a half years. I was afraid. I was afraid to walk into that courtroom and find out that he was only going to serve a year and a half or a year or only weekends or have, you know, more leniency provided to him than it had already been given. And that was my biggest fear. Um, and then when I left the courthouse, I felt so bitter because I thought, you know, I had to hope for three and a half years, knowing that that was not even remotely close to justice. Because that's all that was really that's a peak that's really it's sad that's all that you could look forward to in, in that sense and there's other in, people in that, that have sense. much lower and then to know that offenders usually typically serve one third um our offender right now is serving two thirds and you know we've really fought for that um you know we've gone to every parole hearing we have attended we have written our family has you know my sister and uh chloe's aunt has you know, we've written, we have shown up, we have been there, we fight as hard as we possibly can every single time. And, you know, I, I really believe that it makes a difference, you know, for families when it comes to the parole process, you have to fight. Mm. You have to find it in you to fight. Because if there is a time that your voice does matter, it's with the parole board. It won't make a difference in sentencing. You're, the sentencing is going to be determined regardless of whatever the victim impact statements say. But when it comes to the parole board and corrections, your voice makes a difference. You have to fight. Yes. And it's usually by this point that families are too exhausted to fight. And yep. they're worn out. And they're, they don't, they've been depleted of everything. They have nothing left. What is it that made you keep going, Holly, in those cases where 
you did continue to fight even after the fact of knowing that the sentencing's put in place, two thirds will be served, um, and that um, every time it was up to question whether or not it is continued. What, what what's the biggest thing that's made you keep going? Uh, especially knowing, of course, how painful it is to 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 consistent to consistently bring this up. It's Chloe. It's yeah. all Chloe. It's it's her, it's her light. It's her, you know, I hear her her voice still in the back of my head, like as though it's so clear as day to me. And I just think to myself, her voice deserves to be heard. And so no matter how much it hurts to keep, you know, trying to speak for these things and, um, and trying to fight for them, she doesn't have a voice. She doesn't get a choice. You know, she has no say. She doesn't ever get to make another decision again, ever. And so for me, really, it's not a lot to ask for me to keep speaking for somebody that I love so much. Yeah. And that is the, you know, anytime I have felt defeated or felt like, you know, my opinion and my thoughts and my, my words don't matter. I just think of Chloe and I know that I have to try, even if nobody's listening. And even when I wrote the letter to parliament, that's what I said to myself. It, you know, even if nobody's listening, I'm going to keep trying. Well, I hope you realize that through that it's, it's created quite the ripple effect clearly. And that, you know, there, there finally are going to be people listening. There are people listening. And that, you know, Chloe's life lives on through you being able to share it. You know, and I think that's the most beautiful part about a, a mother's love, parents' love towards their children is like what a reminder of recognizing that the the real and spoken heroes of our world are the ones that brought us into it. It's, uh, you know, and I, I think we tend to neglect that sometimes is... I'm not saying a friend may never do this. I'm not saying a sibling may never, but the way parents nurture and love their kids, there's just nothing like it, you know, and this is just so, such a strong we'll fight example. For our kids. Yeah. We'll fight for our kids. Um, you know, I know a lot of other mothers that um, have, you know, really taken uh, into position of, of advocating and trying to fight for changes as well. And, you know, when I see that, uh, I'm reminded of how powerful a mother's love is. Mm -hmm. Not even death can break that bond. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Shop local. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network. So it's just a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Something I wanna ask you is when it comes to coping strategies or anything that you notice you've done. I love how you've mentioned, Holly, the writing that you've done that has helped recollect moments that I'm sure are very just important to the story that you continue to share and build um, to, to preserve Chloe's legacy. But rather, is there anything else that has worked that you've done, that you've practiced, that you've 
um, been doing on a day-to-day basis since this incident has happened um, that has just helped you navigate the ability to continue to live your life and you know you still have to put food on the table you still have to you know live your own life and be there for others and be there for yourself um i i can't imagine the dip not to compare pain but the level of pain parents feel with loss of a child committing suicide or or an an incident such as what happened to chloe that's just so accidental to a fault where they didn't expect the family didn't expect this to happen but i'm sure you know what i mean with everything in between what can if a parent or someone is listening to this who's still grieving or is trying to find ways to um cope through the loss of a loved one uh what what, what would be some strategies and suggestions you would say are um paramount to the ability to continue living your life i think there's a couple of things that really come to mind um one of the biggest uh, pieces for me was being able to connect to other families um, to not isolate myself in, in that way. Um, I am a very recluse person now. That's part of, you know, what has changed me is that I do, uh, I am much more recluse than I ever used to be. And, um, um, but I've been able to really connect with other families that are going through this, other mothers that are grieving. And, you know, it's a terrible place to be in when, you know, to have to be grieving at all. Um, But I can't stress enough that, you know, connecting to other families and having that connection allows you to know that you're not alone. You know, there were times in my life where I thought that I was certifiable, that, you know, that I was just losing my mind and that that I was never going to be able to to function normally. And, um, you know, reaching out and having that connection with other families let me know that I'm, I'm not alone. I'm not losing my mind that, you know, I can surface these things with these families in ways that I can't, you know, do sometimes with other people. And that's what sometimes, you know, that connection does bring for us. Um, The other thing that, um, and I I almost hesitate with saying this, but um, for me in my journey is, um, is gratitude. And um, I have, very uh it's taken a lot of practice but um part of looking at our situation and chloe's loss is that i had to look at the collision that night and pull out the pieces that i was grateful for and that was very very hard to do but because of some people that were at the collision that night um they made it possible for me to be able to have gratitude. And so, you know, there were several people at the intersection that night that played a pivotal role in Chloe's last moments. Uh, There was an off-duty police officer, Constable Vachon Z. Um, He had stopped his vehicle and allowed Chloe to cross the road. He saw her and he witnessed the collision and he actually U-turned and followed the driver. And so um, I watched the video of the collision that killed my daughter. I watched the entire collision and you can see the car do a U-turn and 
start to follow the driver, and that's um, Constable Vachonzi. Um, he was at the intersection, and when he saw the collision, uh, there was nothing that he could do for Chloe by that at that point. Um, he made sure that um, calls were put into 911 and dispatch, and then he followed the driver, and that's how an arrest was made because our driver fled the scene. If it wasn't for Constable Vachonzi, we may not have apprehended our driver. We may not have had a successful prosecution um, because Constable Vachonzi was there and followed in pursuit and made sure that an arrest was made. Um, the other thing that um, that I pull gratitude for is the off-duty paramedic that was at the intersection that night, Mr. Mike Webb. Mr. Mike Webb uh, didn't have any access to any medical equipment or um, any of the um, the equipment that he would have. So he used his jacket to cover Chloe's body, and he helped and he stayed on scene until Chloe um, was put inside the um, the ambulance. And as well, there was uh, Mrs. Mavis Oxpen. Um, Mavis Oxpen lost her daughter the year before I lost mine. And she was at the collision that night. She was on her way home from church. And when she saw the collision happen, she turned around. She went back. She stayed with my child. She stayed with her and was with her for her final moments, praying over her. And because of this woman, I was then able to know what my child's last moments were because the driver never stopped. So these people that were there in my darkest moments, in my most agony, I am so thankful that my daughter was surrounded by the best. She wasn't meant to die alone and her offender wasn't meant to get away. And so despite the heartache and the hurt and everything else that comes along with it, I find ways to pull gratitude and to hold gratitude for these moments, because I believe that that is just as much part of Chloe's light as anything else is. These people are wonderful, caring, kind people, and they are brave people, and they are the heroes of the story. They're Chloe's heroes. Wow. I, I really appreciate you sharing that, Holly. I, for one, I'm sure as our listeners recognize, see, like it almost gives me goosebumps to recognize the point you made is so true. She, Chloe did not mean to leave this earth alone and, and the, the justice that was served with the right people in place that have had to witness such an, just an unforeseen circumstance that just, was never meant to happen in the first place. You had a medical respondent, you had a police officer, you had someone who also lost their mother before all on scene. Yes. That is uh, to almost to a, it's shockingly unbelievable, but it's also it something is. that I'm so glad you'd mentioned how much gratitude that gives you because in moments of pain, we sometimes need to find what's good about the scenario and i know yes. how bad that sounds but with every problem that causes us the most amount of stress we need to ask ourselves well what was good from what happened and it sounds like you know god bless chloe's soul she she, she had angels that that were among her yeah. in those final yeah. moments and thank goodness as i, I couldn't help but wonder myself what even ended up happening as far as 
the offended getting away, but the fact that someone, you know, was daring enough to go follow because yes. once again, you never know what is this person armed with? What's their intentions? What's happening? Yes. That person is also yeah. all, all of them willing to kind of face uh, a scene that no one wants to ever be in, in the first place and be there till um, the very end, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, the, um, the ability to pull gratitude for these individuals has been part of my, my ability to try and heal. Um, in my moments of weakness, when I struggle the most and I'm asking, you know, why, um, I remember that, um, you know, Chloe's life was noticed that, um, you know, her light shone the brightest. And when it came for her time to go, she was made, she was surrounded by the very best. And these people are what have allowed me to know what her last moments were. And for that, I am grateful because if it weren't for them, I wouldn't know. I would have all these questions that I have no answers to. And I think for parents that don't get answers, um, it prolongs their agony and suffering even more. Um, and so for that, I recognize that and um, and I hold on to that. I'm also very big about um, on mental health and um, counseling therapy, um, staying on top of, uh, you know, all of the work that I need to do to keep my mental health in check and to keep myself as healthy as I can be, um, you know, in terms of my mental health has been a real struggle, but, um, you know, I have, I guess what it comes down to is Oftentimes I feel stagnant and like there isn't any progress, but when I take a look back at all of the little tiny steps that I've taken, all of those little tiny steps might be very, very small by themselves, but they were big strides for me. And I think it's really important for people to recognize that when you're going through something this traumatic and when you're going through something that is this, um, you know, that just completely destroys your life. You know, it's important to not measure what we're no longer able to do and start measuring what we can do, even if it's just in little increments. So whether that's getting up and just being able to have a cup of coffee in the morning, um, you know, whether that's, you know, just being able to to get through a day, to get through an hour that we have to like celebrate and hold on to those moments for as much as we can, because those are that is what's going to propel us forward to the next and the next and the next. And all of those little baby steps eventually lead up the mountain. So true. It's so beautifully said, Holly. And it's a testament again to your positivity and your energy and the light that you truly carry within yourself, you know, because it's it's so much so easier said than done. And um, I, I want to share something that I, I think just given the context that I want to share, um, you know, how I know this person, but it's someone in my life that I actually, another reason why I want to keep it confidential is, um, they didn't know I heard it. I was just over, I was, I was overhearing and it was one of those situations where you can't help but hear it. But I think it's fair to sh share, um, is it, it put me in a place where I felt so much pain for this person and their family because, um, this person in particular lost their husband and, uh, they, for many years, um, avoided, talking with their daughter about how much they missed um their husband which is their daughter's father and then they for many years noticed how much more of a personality change was shifted with the daughter 
Um, she left it alone, but she thought that was the right thing to do was let's move on. Let's move forward. But at the same time, let's do that. But let's not talk about yeah. how much we miss this person. And I found when I heard that, how unfortunately common that is. Um, because I, I dealt with that. I never wanted to share how much I missed my, um, cousin who, you know, lives on in my memory for, um, many years who taught me, you know, how to ride a motorcycle, who took care of me when I was in India, like that aside, it's just, I remember being 11 years old, having to cope through his death, uh, for the most part alone. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to make everyone else sad. Like, it's just sad that for lack of a better term there, that we have nothing in ourselves to feel that it actually is good to share. You know, it, it is okay to get emotional. And I, I love how you mentioned that the importance of going to see therapy or talking and living on with the memory of your daughter with, with loved ones that that's so needed because it keeps that spark alive. And it very much so recognizes that you're not alone in that pain. And um, I just, I wanted to add to that because I found that very beautiful that in your perspective, it's different. It's like, no, we're going to continue to to live on the legacy of Chloe and, and we're going to make sure we not only just live at the very end of what happened, but we're going to talk about all the good that came in those 16 years of our life, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, and I think that, you know, Kenny, that's a really important point because even in my own journey and, um, you know, I have some family members that are unable to talk. They're unable to express that grief and that pain and you can see it you know, it takes a toll on a person. Um, and I mean, you know, back in the day when terrible tragedies happened, um, I think for a lot of families, we dealt with things by not talking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I remember, um, losing a cousin, um, in a, a very serious collision, um, when I was very young. And I remember my mother specifically telling me not to ask my aunt about my cousin's passing. Yeah. Very common. Don't bring it, it up. Don't, very, don't make her sad. Yeah. Right? Don't make her sad. Don't make her upset. Um, and you know, this is kind of funny because I was just talking to my aunt, um, this year and she recalls me being a small child. And anytime we were alone, I would constantly ask her about my cousin. And she said to me at the time, she said, nobody would talk about it. And it brought her such peace and relief that even as a small child that I would bring it up and and I would keep asking her about it because it allowed her to speak about him then um and I found that very poignant because in my own journey I felt like um I have to constantly keep her memory alive I don't ever want to lose that spark that she had and um you know, I've, um, I have a, I, a younger child at home. I have a little girl who's three years old and, um, she never got to meet Chloe. And so, um, Chloe's favorite color was purple and, uh, her little sister's name is Violet. And, um, part of my goal in this life is that I want Violet to be able to know her sister and know of her light and know of the strength that she carried inside of her and all of the wonderful things about Chloe. Um, I didn't want her to only know grief and sorrow. And so although we talk about grief and I'm very open about it, I also want her to be able to talk about her sister and ask questions when she gets older and be able to communicate about this because, you know, it's really important to me that she does get to know her sister, even though she's not here anymore. 
That's really beautiful. I wow. I, I actually was very curious to know if you have any more children and to know that you have another young one and you know are are, are so open to the concept of her getting to know her sister um, that lives on in her heart and yours and yes. your husband's is is beautiful. I have um, I have two wonderful stepchildren and uh, a grandson. Um, and then we have Violet, who's three. And I got pregnant with Violet in the same year that we lost Chloe. Mm. And I'll tell you, Kenny, you know, it was, um, it was a remarkable journey because I no longer had any desire to live my life. I no longer had, you know, I was, I had lost the ability to even take care of my life and take care of myself, but yet I was growing this human that, you know, was going to be, you know, another ray of light for me to hold on to. And I feel like with my children, they are what gets me through. And, um, and because of Violet, I have a way to keep bringing Chloe's memory and to keep finding ways to bring Chloe forward. And so we do things like we, we have a garden for Chloe and every year we raise butterflies and we release them close to her birthday. And so, you know, things like that, that I can have Violet be part of and to know that this is what her sister represents. That's really beautiful. We'll be, we'll be jumping into the um, screen again, once it closes out, okay. just to let you know, but uh, that's just a technical difficulty, everyone. My apologies. But no, with the point that you said there, wow. Uh, I, did, I find that inclusivity and the involvement there is, is so special. And going through what you did at that time, it sounds like to me, your daughter Violet, while you were pregnant with her, was a huge reason to keep going in the first place because you had another reason yes. to live. Yeah, she gave me reason in my life again. Um, I never thought that I was going to ever hear anyone call me mom again. And when yeah. my daughter called me mom, I cried. <laughs> it was the most magical word I could. Yeah, I can imagine being called mom again. Is, is certainly as magical as it gets. Sorry, what was that, Kenny? Oh, I was just saying being called mom again is, is as magical as it gets to be able to relive that experience, right? Honest to God, it, it was. Because after I lost Chloe, I really didn't think that I was ever going to hear that again. And Violet, um, you know, she gave me back that ability to... Um, to hear that that name again and to have that be as part of my identity. Um, losing Chloe was, I lost everything. I lost my ability to support myself, to work, to take care of my family. Um, you know, I barely left the house. I was, um, you know, and Violet was, you know, this little ray of light in my life that started to nudge me and push me to keep going, to keep trying, to keep getting back up. And you know, I think it was when I realized that, you know, this little girl is going to have to know her sister. And um, is she only going to know her sister through sorrow and grief? Or is she going to have the opportunity to know her sister's light? And, you know, that was another big nudge forward for me. Do you see any similarities between both of them? 
even at, at such a young age? Um, I do. Uh, both of my girls have my chin, my pointed chin, nice. which I inherited from my my grandmother. Yeah. And um, I was the only grandchild that got my grandmother's chin. And both of my girls have the chins. So. I love that. <laughs> it's some magical chin. I love that. It's, it's a magical chin. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, awesome. uh, you know, um, I see that um, she's very assertive. Um, the assertiveness and, uh, you know, the little bit of bossiness um, <laughs> kind of right. runs honestly in, in the family. Uh, uh, it comes from me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I feel like both of my girls um, got that gene. And so um, I get to see that in Violet just the way that I did in Chloe. And, um, you know, and then in other ways, they're so different. So it's, um, you know, it's it's been a really unique journey Uh being able to be Violet's mom and carrying on Chloe's legacy is, um, you know, I often say like, you know, I've got um, one of my girls up above and one of my girls on my hand. It's beautiful. I love that hundred percent. I want to take the time now, Holly, to just manifest exactly, you know, what it is that uh, you would like to uh, accomplish in your mission, uh, especially with the project that you have, as you could remind us again, uh, what your community group is doing and what you are spearheading to see um, exactly what it is that others who are listening can do to support, as well as uh, us becoming more aware of uh, the difference that you ultimately want to be making in our uh, existing uh, justice system. The ultimate goal, the big goal that we're hoping for is that um, we're hoping that there's going to be a bill brought forward um, to change the criminal code of Canada and the current offense of impaired driving causing death. Um, we want to see impaired driving causing death redefined as the offense of vehicular manslaughter caused by impaired driving. Uh, we want to see these cases reclassified and categorized as manslaughter in order for the criminal code to reflect the true reckless and violent nature of the crime. Um, with that, we want to see um, victims and their families be recognized as victims of a violent crime. Uh, right now, victims and their families, when they go through the court process under the guise of an accident, they are considered victims of a motor vehicle incident. They're considered victims of a motor vehicle accident and um, they don't have the same rights that other victims of violent crimes have. And um, it's time that we have a government that starts recognizing and acknowledging that these harms are actually, you know, occurring for families across the board. And so that is my hope is that um, that we start seeing uh, a legislation that, um, you know, starts correcting some of the unfair hardship for victims and their families. Yes, definitely. And what can our um, audience do to support this? Is there anything we can share or um, sign or bring light to when we officially launch this podcast and, and just have um, everyone be aware of? Um, I think, you know, the most important thing is for, for the awareness for us to be talking about it. Um, I think, you know, if we can have people that also write in to our parliament, uh, our members of parliament, it's important. It's important to keep writing. It's important to keep contacting. Um, there was, I when I was in parliament, I was talking to a senator and he said that as citizens, that we should treat parliament like our mothers and our fathers. Um, that when we have experienced wrongdoings and we have experienced injustice, um, that we should write to parliament and tell them that. 
and share with them that, you know, these things have happened. And I think a lot of the times we feel like nobody's listening. So why bother? But you know what? I believe that there are people who are listening. And even if you have to write to 192 different people, you're going to find somebody somewhere that cares. I'm so glad you said that, Holly, because two things really came up when you were talking about that is number one, I want people to understand that this conversation manifested originally through me scrolling through Facebook. And, you know, big shout out to Sunny Singh, who, you know, is such an advocate for, um, you know, people like ourselves, like you in particular, who've gone through um, such a hardship, but are liking and sharing, you know, what you've oh, done. Wonderful. That, that would have, right, such a beautiful soul. And, and that would have never come to my attention. But then if the world and the people that live in it start looking at something like that and going, okay, beyond a share, like, that's awesome. That's good. But if someone like myself is seeing it, what do I have access to or what can I do to help this person? Um, hence why I felt like we were able to, you know, have you on the show and bring you on as a guest. But the second piece of that in a more, um, serious specific case with motor vehicle accidents, especially whether or not you're aware of it being impaired related or not, is if you see an accident, do what the three unspoken heroes did on scene and stop. And yes. you never truly know how much of an impact that's going to make until you do so. And I say this to our audience and I say this to you, Holly, just it, it, it made my heart feel so full when you said how much of a difference that made for you and your family mentally um, and gave some element of closure in just knowing that, you know, your, your beautiful daughter just wasn't there left to be alone. There were people Absolutely. that stopped. And I mean this in any case, there's just so much times where we're in life and I'm guilty of this too, where we're in traffic and we're, we're speeding and we're just trying to get from point A to point B. We're trying to rush to get to the same point. But if you saw something that you could be a witness to, how big of a difference that can really make in that whole situation. Yeah. So I wanted to because add to those, that. Um, yeah, because of those three people, um, they gave me the ability to hold gratitude in the face of the worst possible thing that could happen. So yes. without those people, I wouldn't, I would, I don't think I would be, um, even close to where I am today. Exactly. Truly bless them and bless you for, you know, continuously, Holly, sharing a story that I just can't imagine how difficult it is. And I want to acknowledge you and how, you know, as you were talking there earlier, you reminded me how important it is for me to have more conversations with my mother about the brother that she had and lost in a, in a vehicle accident. And that's something that's, that, that really resonates. And I felt like I really connected with you on is, um, I I used to growing up feel guilty to bringing up her brother because I mm -hmm. once again I thought it would make her sad but every year without a doubt on his birthday and on his anniversary she shares a photo of him and shares a memory and I just can't imagine that for those who are also listening to this to just lean on the ones you love and who've similar to you have lost someone or maybe they have lost someone and just get them to share a fond memory of that person and uh, yes. that's what I really appreciate about you being on here is your strength and your charisma and your ability to just allow your daughter to live on through every single moment you're willing to share her tragic story is is a testament to the love that, that you have for her and the people that you surround yourself around. Thank you so much, Kenny. I really appreciate the fact that um, that you wanted to hold the space and to um, to share this. You know, I really um, I really appreciate your time and your heart. I really felt um I've really felt the connection there. So I appreciate it. 
Thank you, it. Holly. To do that virtually means a lot. It's never easy to do that in a no. virtual setting, but that means no. a lot. And virtual hugs are sent your way. I want to know what can we do to follow um, or, or is there is there any page in which, you know, you are on personally or even your community is for us to continue to follow your journey? Yeah, we um, I have the Justice for Chloe, which our Facebook page. And um, I sort of um, I keep the updates on there periodically. I will be doing some more writing um, for the page, you know, moving forward, I think. Um, I always felt like I never wanted to abuse um, the page by posting too much or inundating people with things. But now that I feel like we're, you know, trying to to make motion that we'll probably, um, I'll start doing some more writing again. And, um, you know, that's sort of my plan moving forward is to take some time for that um, and to share with people, you know, the steps that we're taking and, and what that looks like in day-to-day -day life and encourage people, um, you know, I encourage people if they want to reach out to me, they're more than welcome to. Um, I talk to many families and um, and, you know, many people that are going through the justice system and um, I connect with them. We share advocacy. I connect them with other advocacy groups. Um, and so we're sort of like a, you know, a little bit of a network um, between Alberta and British Columbia with Marquita Collius and Families for Justice. Um, Families for Justice is also another Facebook page that people are welcome um, to follow and um, take a look as Marquita is doing work um, from her end in BC. So, um, you know, those are um definitely the two pages that uh, that are going right now that are connected to um, to the impaired driving in Canada issues. There you go. Well, you can most certainly count on me and a few of our listeners to ensure that we, um, you know, follow along and support um, whatever it is that we can based off everything you're posting. And I hope that this uh, episode, Holly, can be used as, you know, a way for you to not feel like you always have to repeat, um, you know, yeah. everything from point A to Z, because I know some things are just you perhaps better left unsaid or just very tough to articulate again. So I hope that this episode can be used as something that you could share to others when they do need to learn more of the details. And, you know, you have a friend in me and you have a friend in our podcast and I oh, appreciate you being wonderful. on. Thank you Absolutely. so much, Kenny. I really appreciate it. No problem, Holly. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is everything that we have. Once again, this episode is brought to you um, by myself and in loving memory of Chloe. And I hope everyone can ensure that they go and proceed to follow the two pages that Holly has mentioned. So we look forward to that there, Holly. We're rooting for you and God bless you. Thank you. Bless you as well. Mm -hmm.